Ok, parfait. Yeah, we know that anthropomorphizing is often frowned upon. I really do think that for night science, it's essential. I have to tell you that Martin and I, we secretly believe that the only reason you agreed to come on this podcast with us is that you saw a heading in one of our pieces where we wrote, don't anthropomorphize genes, they don't like it. Yeah, that was a very good line. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Today, we are very excited to have Professor Daniel Kahneman with us. Danny is a psychologist who has been awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics for his fundamental contributions to the fields of behavioral economics, revealing our cognitive biases, such as loss aversion, which is the fact that we react much more strongly to losses than to gains. And Danny has summarized much of his life's work in his brilliant book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which has been a highly influential bestseller. Itai actually recommended that book to me when we started working on our own book. And the way he introduced it was, it's the operating manual for your brain. And I read the book and I had to agree. I thought it was so fascinating that I've given it to at least a dozen of my friends. And I always make sure I have a second copy on my shelf so I can give it to a friend in need. So <laughs> talking to you is extremely interesting in the context of what we want to explore in this podcast, the process of the creative side of science. And it's so interesting to talk to you because you can talk about creativity from two angles, the inside view reflecting your own creative process and the outside view based on your research on the human mind and on its biases. So this is what we would love to explore together today. Um, sure. It's an embarrassing introduction, but let's get it <laughs> on. <laughs> well, the scientific process is often portrayed as simply testing hypotheses with data. So that's what Itai and I call day science. But that leaves out the important question of where the hypotheses come from in the first place, which we would call night science. Many of our listeners are young scientists who are just getting started. What would you want to tell them? What do they need to know about the creative process? Well, you know, I think you have to allow a lot of time. You have to give yourself time. It's true that good things tend to happen when you're on deadline, but you should really not be on deadline all the time. So that's one important thing. The second is really, you know, this is very personal, but for me, it's really the not to be satisfied with what you have done or with the current state of your thinking or with the current state of your writing. It's to be in a constantly open to the possibility that there is a better way of doing it, there is a better idea somewhere, and once you recognize it, you should just drop the old one. But this is very personal. That's the way I do it. And I'm not sure that everybody does it that way, and it, it certainly is not a precondition. But for me, this process of tossing old ideas, not old, they could have been, you know, the idea I had yesterday, and rethinking it, that's very important. Yeah. What you say about tossing out old ideas, that sounds a lot to us like loss aversion. So do you think that part of the creative process involves consciously realizing that we may be programmed to hold on to ideas when really 
instead of clinging to them, we need to let go of them and, and actually be favorably open to new ideas. Actually, I mean, there is another fallacy. The fallacy is called the sunk cost fallacy. And this is that when you have invested heavily in something, you tend to be willing to invest more in the same mm -hmm. thing. And what I was describing is having no sunk costs when you're involved in creation. That is, at any time, you're willing to start over. That at least I'm willing to start over. And that is really a very important part of it. And it's a very important part of the joy of it. I know I'm enthusiastic about this idea now, but I won't be tomorrow. This is really part of the fun of the whole process. And the sense that once you get those self-critical insights, once you see what was wrong with your previous idea, there is really a sense that you have learned something, you have made progress. So for me, quite often, what feels like progress is seeing what was wrong with the previous idea. This usually comes with some way to fix it. But the recognition that the previous idea was wrong is quite important to my process. These days, I think when I was younger, I probably had more arrows than my quiver. So this is really interesting. I, I actually know some very creative scientists who have a problem with that, who cling to ideas that they had and uh, are very reluctant to admit that they're wrong, which probably limits their creativity more than they would have to. Well, you know, on the other hand, well, in the first place, everyone, and that certainly includes me, we have commitments to certain ideas and we're very reluctant to give them up. So it's a relative matter. Well, persistence actually is really a very important part of what I'm describing. Mm -hmm. And persistence in the sense that you're not giving up on what you were doing yesterday. You know, it's hard for me to imagine, actually, because my most creative period was my work with Amos Tversky, my collaborative work with, with Amos Tversky. And we really kept going at a piece of text indefinitely. And, you know, nothing was sacred. And the fact that we've been over it 30 times actually did not make it any harder to change our mind. That's the lack of sunk cost. So it's hard for me to imagine. I know that some people are stubborn and they won't change their mind when other people think that they're wrong. But being stubborn in the sense of not being able to recognize that you've just been wrong, that seems to me hard to put together with creativity. Yeah, and you know, you just mentioned working with Amos Kvelsky, and anyone who's read your amazing book, Thinking Fast and Slow, has, through you, gotten to know Amos as well. And I'm wondering, do you think that working with him enabled persistence and enabled to overcome the sunk cost fallacy? The main thing, actually, in our joint work was that we had an enormous amount of fun. So we were laughing all the time and we really enjoyed each other's company enormously. Right. And that meant that we were never bored. So it was always a pleasure. And we had infinite patience. I mean, Amos, had, he was even more of a perfectionist than I am, but he had that line that let's get it right. That still rings in my ears. Uh, you know, let's, let's just get it right. 
And that means never to be satisfied. But how do you do that? How do you both have the aspect of let's get it right and keep it fun at the same time? The fun came really almost independently. The fun came from the fact that we enjoyed each other's company and we made each other funny. Certainly Amos, he didn't need me to be funny, but he made me funny. So that made the whole thing a joy. And the joy clearly helped the creative process. But part of this was that we had absolutely no specific deadline in mind ever. And we spent a year writing one article, and we spent at least two years writing another. Those are the two most important articles we wrote. And on a good day, you'd have a sentence or two. (laughs) And on a good day, you'd get rid of a paragraph. So in your book, you actually write about your collaboration with Amos that perhaps most important, we checked our critical weapons at the door. During the years of collaboration, neither of us ever rejected out of hand anything the other said. Could you explain to us a little bit why you think that is so crucial? Well, you know, in the first place, uh, I should say that Quite often, when I hear other people's ideas, and that was certainly true of Amos, the first thing that comes to your mind is what's wrong with it. (laughs) What could be wrong with it? So we're not extraordinarily enthusiastic about ideas. We're quite critical in finding the flaws. And it was absolutely essential when we were working together that that critical aspect not be part of, of the interaction. And that's because we viewed the generating ideas as a progressive enterprise. So you have a bad idea, but there must be something there. So that Mm. was the basic assumption, that whenever either one would say something, which could be off the wall, our attitude would be, there must be some nugget there. There must be, you know, something occurred to you. It's not an accident. There's something useful. It wasn't always true, but that was the assumption. The mm-hmm. assumption was that whatever was said, if it was surprising, it was worth dwelling on. That's really the opposite of the standard attitude that we often have for other people. So would you say that's related to a need for suspending critical thinking to some extent when you need to be creative? No, I mean, this is the joy of collaboration. So in working with Amos, the main, you know, actually there were many sources of joy, but one that was particularly salient, you know, you often have an idea and you don't know what you mean. So you say something. And in some cases, it can take years to discover the true meaning of what you just said. And I had the recurrent experience that Amos understood me better than I understood myself. So I would have an idea, I would express an idea, and he would see much more clearly than I had while producing it what could be done with it. But that requires two people. This is not something that a person can do alone. And you know, Danny, this is perhaps a great transition to the system one, system two dichotomy that made reading your book uh, so much fun. So for the folks listening that don't know about this, System 1 and System 2, there are the names that Danny gives 
to two agents. And he talks about the book as really a kind of psychodrama with these two characters. System one, that's quick thinking that happens effortlessly. And much of Dani and Amos's work was to expose the biases of system one. And system two is the slow thinking. System two is what we call ourselves, kind of like we identify as our choices, our beliefs. And when you talk about the creative process that you experienced with Amos, how would you describe the interplay between these two systems? For example, when you say that you said something, you didn't quite know what it meant yet. Was that your system one talking and Amos was turning on system two to try to decipher that? Well, you know, you can push those metaphors too hard. (laughs) You know, there are not two agents in the mind. I mean, I use that, you know, for where we should talk about why system one and system two seem to be useful ideas, although they're sort of in another way of looking at it, they're a scandal because you're (laughs) presenting or seeming to think that there are those entities in the mind, which in fact there are not. So that's the role of fiction in thinking that I hope we get to explore. But clearly, the yeah, the non-critical system one thinking is really in large part. I mean, those are the things that just occur to you. And they occur to you before you have time to criticize them. So the uncritical part, just the associative part, the new ideas, unless you're solving a problem, which also happens, which is purely a reasoning activity, purely a system two activity in that language, much of the time what is happening is that things occur to you and they seem to happen. It's not something that you do. It feels like something that happens to you. And That's really the essence of the distinction between system one and system two, is whether this is something you do or something that happens to you. Now, it happens to you while you are in a very active state, but you don't know how you produced it usually. You were looking for something. You know, it is like quite often when you're looking for a word and you're not finding the word, and eventually the word comes, but There is the sense, at least for me, that I didn't produce the word. I didn't cause it to happen. I was sort of waiting for it to happen, and then it happened. And that is part of what I understand as the creative process, at least for me. But you know, Danny, you say that these system one and system two, they're, they're helpful to use when describing them. They're helpful metaphors that perhaps can be pushed too far, they're illusions, they don't actually exist. But what if they do actually exist? For example, if you think about things from an evolutionary perspective, perhaps system one came first and later to evolve was system two. It's more kind of like higher order thinking. Oh, I'm quite convinced that that's true because system one is really anchored in perception. My description of system one is really processes that happen automatically. And Mm -hmm. those processes certainly have an older evolutionary history than the processes, deliberate thinking. So that's clear. But that doesn't make them into real system. So it seems that system one has an important role in this creative process. But would you say that the first creation of a new idea 
Is that usually system one alone, or is it some interaction, some interplay between the two systems? No, of course. I mean, you know, you're working on a problem, and you're aware of working on the problem. And then your brain is working on the problem, and without you being aware of it. But there is that intention. When I was younger, I would often go to sleep deliberately with a problem in my mind. And, you know, significant frequency. I would wake up in the morning with a problem solved or with something new. But clearly, what is persistent is you know there is a problem. So you know you're looking for a word. is a small instance of that. But in the broader sense, you know you're struggling. You're trying to make sense of something. And that is an intention. But the way that that intention gets implemented is by a process over which you have limited control because it happens associatively and it surprises you when it suddenly, you know, the word that you were looking for comes to your mind. And then quite often you have the feeling, oh, yes, that's the right word. That's the word I was looking for, although I didn't know that I was looking for it. Right. And, you know, while we're on the topic of uh, System 1 and System 2 and their interactions, going back to how you were talking about them as separate characters and really we're anthropomorphizing the agents. I'll actually start with another association. The same time that Thinking Fast and Slow came out, another book came out by one of the brothers, Fur, F-O-E-R, whose name I now forget. Well, it has Einstein in the title. He was reporting on teaching himself to be a memory expert, to be a prodigy, to be able to remember things that people don't usually remember. And the trick, one of the major tricks, is uh, it goes back to the Romans, is to that when you want to associate ideas in a string, when you want to remember a string, you actually visualize a house and you deposit the elements of the string in separate rooms. And later, when you want to repeat the string, all you do, or so it seems, is you go through the house and you go from room to room and you find what's in there. <laughs> Now, the reason that this works so beautifully is that there are two tasks that the mind could take on, and it's specialized for one and quite poor at the other. How do you learn lists? Now, the mind is not very good at learning lists. On the other hand, how do you learn routes? How do you learn your way from one place to another? That was superb at. And this is using something that the brain or the mind is good at as supporting an activity that the brain is not very good at. And this is what anthropomorphizing does, at least for me and I think in general, is that we are specialized about for thinking about agents. And agents, they have personalities and they have intentions. They're trying to do things. When you look at them for a while, stories happen to them. So in the case of psychology, for example, you know, with System 1 and System 2 work, the alternative to agents would be categories. So you would categorize thinking into type 1 thinking and type 2 thinking. And actually, 
Those are the common terms because people resist the anthropomorphic idea. But type 1 and type 2 thinking, and then you have lists under type 1 and type 2 thinking of, you know, what are the features of type 1 thinking, what are the features of type 2 thinking, and what are the Mm. examples. When you think in agent terms, those are no longer lists. They are traits of a personality. And we are very good at that. So we're very good at forming an image of somebody with with different propensities, with different intentions, with different traits. And I have very deliberately used that in order to help people think about what is really type 1 thought and type 2 thought. To think about that, it's much easier, I thought, to think of system 1 thoughts and system 2 thoughts. And I use that very deliberately in the book. It scandalized quite a few of my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know that anthropomorphizing is often frowned upon. Frowned yeah. upon. I really do think that for night science, it's essential. And in this case, I think it's actually very useful to me to think in system one, system two terms. And this is because thinking of them as systems makes it easy to think of them interacting with each other. Whereas when you have processes in two categories, there is nothing natural that comes to mind that is easy to do about interactions between members of those two separate lists or those two separate categories. So I thought that for me, and I think for my readers as well, the system one, system two idea was very, very useful in spite of its by reputation. Yes, totally. And Danny, I'm wondering if you would agree with one sentence that we wrote in a piece that was called The Two Languages of Science. And we wrote the sentence about you. We said, in many ways, thinking and talking in night science mode may be more related to what Daniel Kahneman has called fast thinking, which draws on instinctive heuristics and is intuitive and emotional. Conscious, rigorous day science may be closer to the deliberate and logical slow thinking mode. I think that's true. I mean, both of those are involved. Uh, When you're doing real scientific work, you can't go very long without criticizing yourself. But being open, there is that kind of openness, waiting for better ideas, not closing on what you already have. All of my life has been collaborations. But aside from Amos, I think, well, no, there are a few examples of collaborators But in many cases, I find that they tend to be content with the texts that we have now. And, well, I'm not. The satisfaction, I'm returning to what I was saying earlier, seems to be essential and remaining open. So the dissatisfaction is not that I'm unhappy. It's just that we are open to changing. The fact that it's there on paper doesn't mean that it has to be there. Going back to uh, how you describe your work with Amos, I don't know if you worked with other collaborators in the same way, you describe in your book how you could quickly do many rounds of experiments together by basically discovering a bias that you have yourself. And then if you discovered that Amos had the same bias, you would assume, okay, that could be a pattern that's more general to humans. So that you did very quick, small-scale experiments on yourselves and then went on and performed those in terms of real experiments on large sample sizes. Is that a general 
trick that you used? No. The work that Amos and I did is really not an example of how science is done because <laughs> it is absolutely linked to a particular topic. I don't think that you can do what we did on any other topic, including in psychology. But when you're studying thinking, you're studying yourself. When you're studying intuitive thinking, it's a kind of thinking to which you have access. And that's just not true of most other things. So psychologists have some kind of advantage when they're studying things about which they have intuitions. Not all of psychology is like that. There are many topics in psychology where you do regular science in the sense that it's not about you, it's about the phenomenon. But when we were thinking about our own thinking, it was about us. And that made it fun, but that also made it very atypical of the scientific process, I think. Okay, so do you also have examples of a creative process that you think is more typical or more easy to generalize? Well, when we, well, you know, there are many different types of scientific activity, but the main other thing, Amos and I had two main major projects. One of them was on judgment and it produced those heuristics we've been talking about. And the other one was on decision-making. And there we developed a theory that turned out to be quite influential, more influential than we had expected, which we call prospect theory. And then most of the work was really on the theory. So that was much more standard. Uh, it was, how do we find the best formulation for something? What would be an example of this particular point that we're trying to make? So that was a somewhat different process, still very enjoyable because we enjoyed each other's company and still very dependent on infinite patience. It took us four years to do prospect theory, but that's more typical than the process of examining our own thinking. Although even in prospect theory, our confidence, for example, in loss aversion that you mentioned, and this asymmetry between losses and gains, you know, that's because I think most people agree that that's the way they feel. That really came from our introspection. I've heard it said, and I think you said it as well, that prior to your work with Amos, in economics, the agent was viewed as the econ, the very rational consumer, and that you too exposed all of the biases. I think in the scientific method, if we look at how it's presented, there's an analogy to be made that there is a psychon, if you will, that's a very rational scientist proceeding a straight line from one logical step to the next. But actually, if you talk to anyone who's done a research project, it's not linear at all. And I'm wondering what you think are the biases, the cognitive errors that we have when we're performing the scientific process? That's a difficult one. I mean, what are the typical errors that we make? You know, I happened to be about to submit a paper, and it took us about a year to work something out. And then after we worked it out laboriously and verified it with data, it turned out that you can essentially derive it. It looks as if we didn't need that year. We could have thought mm -hmm. about it, you know, immediately because it's so obvious after the fact. 
And this is something with which I've had a lot of experience, that something that you work at and then you state it, and then, oh my God, it could never have been different. That happens quite a bit. Really what you're saying is with hindsight, you realize this aspect could have been derived. That's really quite misleading. So what I was going to say about, with seriously thinking of a footnote, saying this sounds simple, but we don't want to claim credit for having thought about it in an afternoon because it sounds like a derivation. So we have a derivation and here, look at the data, they confirm it and it's all done in eight pages. And that's really not the way it happened. So there is that aspect is misleading, really, that when you read science, you feel as if it was easy to get there because the description is linear and things follow logically from the previous steps. And that clearly is not the way that it works. The way that it works is you sometimes know where you're going and you think you got there, but actually there was something missing on the way. But the fact that you are at both where you are now and at the goal and thinking for a moment that you have reached it, that actually there is a path, that's quite useful. And then you can find that actually the path is broken, but that's changed the problem to sort of linking the broken ends of of the path. So a lot of things happen to you that are definitely not linear on the way to something that sounds linear. So why is it that we make it sound linear? There is an element of teaching and communication in science, and you don't need to know the process. That is, when I'm teaching you something, I'm not teaching you how to get there. I'm teaching you what I got. And science is communication, is teaching. So the process is not important, actually. In the scientific lore, the process is not important. We're talking about the outcome. And the outcome is a line of reasoning and some facts. So earlier today, when Itai and I were talking, We were actually wondering if this kind of bias that if you retrospectively look at a discovery, you know, it seems so obvious, if that is also something that fools ourselves and that would therefore make it more difficult to actually study the process of creativity, because maybe for ourselves, it's very hard to reconstruct that convoluted path in retrospect. What do you think about that? My memory is poor, but even people with better memory, you don't remember the steps. So once you have learned a better way of doing it, the previous way gets very quickly forgotten. So recreating the creative process is extremely difficult. And Danny, one aspect that you stress in the book is associative thinking and how our thinking is very much biased by the principle that you call what you see is all there is. Do you think that there are tricks that we can use in our creative process to try to overcome that? In other words, to be more consciously aware of how our creative process is biased by just the particular things we've been exposed to. That is really part of of the critical phase. So it's been Mm. clear in this conversation that there are those two parts. So there is the openness and when you're allowing your brain to find solutions without controlling it. And then there is the critical phase. What's wrong? 
what's wrong with what we have done? What's wrong with the ideas? And you need the critical phase, obviously. It's absolutely essential. And there, one of the things that happened, certainly in the later stages of preparing something for publication, is you look at something from the perspective of someone else. Amos and I did that when we were producing Prospect Theory. We had a sort of a figure, mythical figure that we created. It was a graduate student with infinite patience, reading our work and finding flaws in it. Okay. (laughs) And we were conscious of this. We were going to make that graduate student's work as difficult as possible. (laughs) That was the perspective. It's funny that you two are the professors, but you're relying on the grad students to keep you honest. Yes, (laughs) because the grad students have infinite patience. And because there are many of them. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. You know, when you started... Talking about this, I assumed you would say that, oh, then we thought about what might reviewers say about this paper. But I think the grad student is much more constructive than that hypothetical reviewer. Worrying about reviewers is a separate part of it. And that really is not about doing science. It's about writing Mm -hmm. papers. But in doing science, it's the graduate student that you worry about. It's what's wrong with my argument. But you know, Danny, when I was asking about associative thinking, and creativity. I actually was thinking more about a night science kind of system one associative thinking. And so, you know, our system one can't be aware of things that we haven't been exposed to yet. Clearly, system one operates on what you already know. So I was responding to you. I was saying system one is susceptible to what you see is all there is. It operates Mm -hmm. on what's up there. Then it's the job of system two to say, well, what is it that you don't know? What is it that you haven't thought through? What could be the difficulties? What could be the flaws? And there is that effort at finding flaws in your own thinking that is the complement of this creative associative process. You need both of them. Another point that we would like to talk a little bit about is In the book, you discuss the topic of cognitive ease, a state in which your mind is working almost effortlessly. If you need to have an idea, if you need to be creative, would you say that's something that's better done with cognitive ease or do you have to leave cognitive ease? Well, that's a difficult one. Usually, you know, you have to stay on task. You're mostly on task, and then sometimes you need to take a walk or to take a shower. But basically, you really have to be involved. This is a problem I'm struggling with at a particular time. So you have that intention going, and that you know that somewhere this is what you're working on. And, you know, I was telling you earlier, sometimes you know it even when you sleep, and this problem-solving machinery is still doing its work, even when you sleep. How would I put it? In the first place, you know, here I'm not really sure that at my age, when I'm 88 years old, I remember what it was like to be 40. I know I don't. But so for me, it's you stay on task, and it's quite effortful. You are actually thinking, and occasionally a new thought comes to mind and you recognize it as new and you work on it. I'm 
I think it was a lot easier when I was younger. That cognitive ease was much more important. Mm -hmm. For me, I need to be tormented by something. I need to be really bothered. If I'm not bothered, then I might as well just have a beer and sit and watch something on Netflix. What you're describing as torment is what I was describing sort of more happily, I think, in terms of knowing, <laughs> knowing that you have a problem. This is my problem these days. It can be described as torment because you know you haven't solved it. But it can also be described at that active state where you're anticipating a solution. You know, when work is going well, you know you'll solve it. And that's very reassuring. Well, you know, on the one hand, you said you just had uh, submitted a paper and it took you a year and you're clearly working very hard. On the other hand, you're 88 years old. That's really impressive that at such an age, you're still so active. You know, it's a matter of luck, whether you stay curious or not, and whether you find questions engaging. It's a matter of luck. And it's also a matter of how good you are at it. I mean, when know that you're not really doing anything that's useful. I suppose it's one can get discouraged, and I suppose that happens, and I expect that to happen to me. But it hasn't happened yet in some domains, so I'm still playing with ideas. That's great. So I assume that you're still playing with ideas with other people, right? What do you think makes collaborations especially creative? You know, I mean, you already mentioned the fun part, that that's important. And with this, I think we can totally agree, Itai and I. But are there any other aspects that make collaborations especially creative? Well, I mean, you know, in some cases, in many cases, there are complementary skills so that as a unit, you're more skilled than the individual. But I really find interacting with my collaborators is intensely pleasurable. And that creates that patience, that open space that you have. It's, it's more fun. It's a lot of fun mm -hmm. to work with other people. And it's a lot of fun to bounce ideas and to see how they think or how they respond to yours. And occasionally you get surprised. Uh, there are many aspects of collaboration that are extremely enjoyable and make it creative. So can we ask, actually, what are you working on these days? What's the next big idea? Well, it's not big. I'm working on, on an issue of happiness and income, where a colleague and I published an article 12 years ago that was quite influential and, I think, was wrong. It was at least partly wrong. So it was refuted by somebody else, and I invited that person to work with me in what I call adversarial collaboration. We collaborated for over a year, and now we're done. We have found what was wrong with the previous formulation. Uh, we had a discovery, and we exaggerated its scope, but there's still a discovery there. And the other hand, the exaggerated scope made us wrong, and we can put it all together. So that's been a very satisfactory collaboration. I, that's one of the topics I work on. Actually, I have three collaborations going. That's the one that I'm working on this week. So this idea of adversarial collaborations, I think that's a great one, but also a quite unusual one, right? That you would team up with somebody who's a 
vehement critic of some of your ideas in order to find out what is the truth between those two positions. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Yeah, I formulated that concept of adversarial collaboration 25 years ago, and I've done quite a few of them, and they're very interesting. By the way, this one is unusual in that we have a solution that we both agree on. But <laughs> in many other cases, the work brought us closer and the work made us friendlier And in a deep way, we didn't change our minds. And that, I think, that aspect of scientists not changing their mind is absolutely fascinating. And that is something that I've been thinking about a lot during this year. It's really interesting. But on a personal level, is there some kind of hostility in the sense, you know, there are two opposing views and you have to get over that? Or is there some way to keep it professional the whole time? Well, I had one instance where we really started out with strongly entrenched and adversarial positions. And there, my recommendation is take an arbiter, take a third person. So in this instance, for example, it turned out that we were collaborating in a very friendly way anyway, but we did engage a third person who is sort of neutral, knows us both, as it happened. She didn't need to intervene. But <laughs> in one of the collaborations the only really tense one that I ever had. She kept us going, and the fact that we both trusted her was very important. But then the outcome was that my adversary and I ended up really liking each other. And that has been my experience in all of them, that you end up much friendlier on a personal level. I made one real friend from a long-term adversarial collaboration. Amazing. Yeah. So it really sounds like we all should engage much more in these adversarial collaborations. I really recommend it. It's an interesting process. And what you have to be willing to do is, which is unusual, because you are not going to agree completely, you have to write a publication in two voices, which is not the standard thing. But you have to explore where you agree and where you disagree. So there are interesting things to say about adversarial collaboration. It's a whole process. Yeah, I think that's a really amazing idea. You know, Danny, we're uh, very sad to bring this conversation to a close. It's, it's been so amazing. I have to tell you that Martin and I, we secretly believe that the only reason you agreed to come on this podcast with us is that you saw a heading in one of our pieces where we wrote, don't anthropomorphize genes, they don't like it. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> so we're very glad that we used that heading. Yeah, that was a very good line. <laughs> yes, well, thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for this amazing conversation. It was great fun. Same here.